3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. It is Thursday morning, Thursday the 7th of July, 2022. Oh, we are more than halfway through the year. Good morning, Ines. Good morning. Um, how are you going this week? I am tired. As I say every time, I'm either tired or exhausted or full of joy. And more so tired this time. <laughs> well, you know, we move, right? It's, Absolutely. Uh, it's, we, we, keep, we keep this show going, and uh, we love coming to you every Thursday morning. You might not, uh, might not be able to hear it from us being very tired, but this is definitely, I would say, one of the highlights of our week. Absolutely. Sometimes there is not a lot of joy in our weeks, and everything feels stressful. We're coming here sitting across from Priya, looking at their wonderful face. Oh, thank you. I've been uh, mixing a peptide booster into my moisturizer. Peptide booster, sponsor of 3CR. <laughs> it's not. Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, anyway, so <laughs> we have a big show on today. Um, maybe uh, we will jump into our little rundown. I can kick it off. Um, so we're going to first hear from historian Claire Land, who's based at the Mundani Baluk Academic Unit at Victoria University, who spoke with Robbie Thorpe on the June 8th episode of Bundles Fire on 3CR about the history of the struggle for Northland Secondary College in the 90s. And the Melbourne Museum is currently holding a special exhibition called Fight for Survival, featuring student artworks, community responses, and the rousing speech from Gary Foley that united a community. So uh, we'll give you some more details about how to attend that, but you can look it up on the Melbourne, uh, Melbourne Museum's website, and really keen to hear that little um, little segment. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Dr. Amanda Porter to discuss the Independent Commission of Inquiry into Queensland Police Service responses to domestic and family violence, and to discuss some concerns around dominant approaches to police reform. And Amanda is a prison abolitionist and policing, policing researcher of Brinja Ewan, Greek and English descent, based in NARM. And um, yeah, really Really interested to have that discussion as well because of the recent uh, yeah, information, quite concerning information that's coming out of this Queensland Police Service inquiry, which I'm sure um, listeners would have already read about a little bit in The Guardian. Um, so, yeah, important to unpack these issues. And then we will replay a segment of Beyond the Bars on 3CR featuring Ty, a community member who is at Loden Prison near Castlemaine, talking about art and doing time during lockdown. Art plays a big role in people's journeys on the inside. You'll also hear voices of Dale, Shirley and Willie. Beyond the Bars was established 20 years ago to connect people and families separated by prison during NADOC week and giving voice to issues faced inside and out. And you can actually... Tune in anytime um, on 3cr.org and all this week from 11 a.m. And then we have my first very studio interview uh, with Judy Kuo, who is an Australian, um, Asian-Australian, sorry, unionist and artist in Nam. And she works at Victoria Trades Halls Council and her union and activist work features strongly in her art practice. 
and she joins us today to speak about her art practice and how this intersects with organizing, unionism, anti-racism, and disability justice. Fantastic. I'm really excited for that one, um, especially because it is currently Disability Pride Month, and we were hoping to yeah, speak with an amazing artist and organizer about you know, the importance of, of, of these um, of these intersecting ways of organizing. Um, so finally, we'll be joined by Daniel, who's the research coordinator for the FLUX study conducted by the Kirby Institute, Faculty of Medicine, University of New South Wales. And Daniel joins us today to talk about the study's investigation into the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental and sexual health among gay and bisexual men. Daniel Storer completed a Master of Public Health at the University of Sydney and is currently completing his doctoral research at the Kirby Institute, investigating the impacts of COVID on Australian gay and bisexual men's health and well-being. So big, big show today um, and hope that hope that this brings you some of the important conversations that have been happening across the week, but also brings you a little bit of a bit of hope as well. Uh, so you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for the 7th of July. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Sorry. Let me start again. Listeners, please be advised that these headlines include mention of an Aboriginal person who has died. So a first of its kind interim report from the Uruk Truth Telling Commission was released this week detailing elders' experiences of ongoing pain and harm to First Nations people and highlighting urgent need to address injustices. The First People's Assembly has urged for the report submission to be delayed, saying more consultation would allow for the report to better reflect views of First Peoples in Victoria and provide a strong platform for reform through treaties. The Uruk Commission opted to release the report, recommending that the final report be delayed by two years until 2026 and that the government make changes to how information provided to the Commission is stored and accessed. The Commission says the current 2024 deadline does not give the time needed to customize a culturally appropriate model for consultation and one that does not replicate colonial injustices. And in other news, reports this week have revealed that an internal Australian Defence Force document explicitly warned of a culture of cover-up in the Special Forces two decades before allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan emerged. The documents related to allegations of special forces misconduct in East Timor in 1999, with incidents including the killing of two militiamen in controversial circumstances and claims of torture at a secret interrogation centre set up by the Australian Defence Force. The report that followed these allegations warned of defence personnel's failure 
to report incidents truthfully and said the special forces code of silence needed to be broken down. Then, two decades later in 2020, the inquiry into allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan made 30 references to a code of silence within the special forces, which contributed to unlawful killings in Afghanistan, which is so disappointing but definitely not surprising. Also in headlines this week, a recent study has found that interpreters are underutilised in healthcare and that people who speak languages other than English in Australia feel they are not given the time in doctor's appointments to fully understand what is being said. Experts say cost is a barrier for some patients who can't afford to access extended appointments that allow time for interpretation. There is no item under Medicare benefits that caters specifically for patients who require translators. And... Some patients who are refugees or on temporary visas, visas sorry, do not have access to a doctor who speaks their language or is set up with interpreter services. And finally, in headlines, and with an additional note that this headline includes reference to an Aboriginal person who has died in custody, a coronial inquiry has found that the death in custody of a Barkindu man brings great shame to white Australia and demonstrates the role of intergenerational trauma in the incarceration of First Nations people. Kevin Bugmy was forcibly removed from his family as a child and spent his life in state institutions, including 36 years in prison, for an offence he was tried for at just 20 years of age, and he was held, I believe, 18 years past the end of that sentence. The inquiry detailed that Mr. Bugmy was transferred between prisons 50 times in 19 years and received grossly inadequate care for an addiction that affected his ability to access parole. In response to the inquiry's findings, Mr. Bugmy's sister, Doreen Webster, said, Right now, it's NAIDOC week. The government will be holding NAIDOC events, doing their acknowledgements of country and talking about respect. But here's the real truth. It's been over 30 years since we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal people dying in custody, and they keep letting it happen. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 7th of July. And, yeah, just want to reiterate how absolutely shameful and horrifying it is to hear about these findings or um, about these initial um, issues coming out of the coronial inquest into Mr. Bugme and uh, express our solidarity with, with his family and loved ones who have to sit through this process. Um, it is just, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's just absolutely ridiculous um, and, yeah, uh, farcical in the most horrifying possible way. Now, we did mention that it is NAIDOC week, um, and we wanted to yeah, mention some important, uh, important groups and organizations that you might want to donate to, Inez. Uh, yes, so because of NAIDOC week and Disability Pride uh, Month in July, we want to make sure that we highlight really important organizations such as Disability Justice Network, who have been pivotal in the COVID era, which is still ongoing, providing mutual aid and services when NDIS cut off a lot of people. And as we've seen in other interviews that I've done recently, NDIS is broken and it's really important that we give back to these organisations. And as well as the Dajoa Foundation, who support families who are going through debts in custody and help them navigate media and coronial inquests. Yeah, and they're currently supporting the family of, of Mr. Bugme go through this process at the moment, so they're actively involved right now. Yep, and it is run by April Day and their family, um, 
and knowing the the horror that the entire family went through they are the ones who know exactly how to support uh so that's incredibly important as well i would also recommend black pearl studio uh because they are providing a much much important and needed space for first nations communities to come and express art and share knowledge and yeah just provide a space where it is welcome and safe yeah and they provide community meals to mob i think every wednesday but you have to check their website and social media for that as well and of course we'll have links to all of this in our show notes and lastly we wanted to draw people's attention to uh, the work of sisters inside and flat out beyond bricks and bars and the trans and gender diverse decarceration project but also the incarcerated trans and gender diverse um Fund. Fund, yes. Um, so we'll have links to all of that as well in our show notes, but just um, wanted to highlight the excellent and really important work that they've been doing, uh, supporting supporting people, including, um, you know, sister girls and brother boys that are incarcerated to navigate the already incredibly oppressive carceral system while also being trans or gender diverse um, and also providing people with resources and post-release support as well. It's an immense amount of work that is done by these organizations and it is really done on a shoestring. So I encourage people to, to chip into that as well. Um, and, oh, yeah, we also wanted to plug uh, Karanjarla Mowajari. Uh, so this is the ceasefire project. Now you would have heard a little segment related to that on our show over the past few weeks um, featuring Barbara Shaw. So we will have links to all of those in our show notes. And, you know, finally, um, recommend that people continue tuning in to Beyond the Bars and buying the Beyond the Bar CD, which you can get from 3cr.org.au. So we might jump into our first segment for today, uh, and this is featuring historian Claire Land, who's based at the Mundani Baluk Academic, Uni- uh, Academic Unit at Victoria University, who spoke with Robbie Thorpe on the June 8th episode of Bunjil's Fire on 3CR about the history of the struggle for Northland Secondary College in the 90s. And the Melbourne Museum is currently holding a special exhibition called Fight for Survival, featuring students' artworks, community responses, and the rousing speech from Gary Foley that united a community. And this has uh, been extended until Sunday, the 24th of July. And you can catch it at Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre at the Melbourne Museum. And also you can listen to Bunjil's Fire on 3CR 855 AM every Wednesdays from 11 AM to 2 PM. So let's jump into that segment with Claire Land and Robbie Thorpe. We're with Bunjilini and now I'm here with Claire Land. You're at the fire on Community Radio 3CR on the land of the cool and under Bunjil, the eagle, creator ancestor. Good morning, Claire, and um, thanks heaps for coming in. Um, You've got a message for us? Yeah, good to see you, Rob. And um, there's a couple of things happening that I wanted to let the listeners know about in case people want to turn up. The Northland Secondary College story, so the the project to tell the story of that campaign and, and the school that that campaign saved, has found a, a place at the Melbourne Museum for the story to be told. And, and okay, yeah, so I went and seen it had a look. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah, so... No, it's great, and it's worth having a good read of that stuff, too. It's a, it's a good glimpse of that time, and um caught that history. I'm glad that happened, and the, the court cases. It wouldn't have happened if we didn't go through the courts, and we didn't stand up and fight. Yeah, that's the, 
Mm, that's huge lessons in there for for you know activists about what it takes to win you know like all the different facets of the campaign that that the effort and the dedication that so many people put in in different different facets from kids to parents to teachers and volunteers and and uh, well, such an important issue in mean, education and having a secure place for education i know that northland secondary colleges had the highest rate of um Retention and um, achieving uh, the high school certificates and the leaving passes and that. It was one of yep. the rare schools in Victoria, actually. Yep. And the other right. thing that made it important was, was a little bit of Aboriginal culture being taught there too, which I think helped, went a long way in terms of the argument and, uh, in winning the case because where else could you get it in, in the state of Victoria? It wasn't, wasn't happening at all. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, um um, Aboriginal kids and non-Aboriginal kids being to being able to learn something about Aboriginal culture at school and also um, ways of being and teaching and um, also for Aboriginal students to have a school where they weren't constantly subjected to racism by the teachers. Create, creating the right environments for people mm. to, to, to become educated, you know, mm. and still a big issue today, you know, it's... It's unfriendly for Aboriginal people. The curriculum's wrong and offensive for a start. And all these things, the teachers are all, they're not our peers, you know, and, you know, it's, we're up against it. We're a small minority in our own country. So those places are very special, like Northlands was. You yeah. know, we, we, we sort of, as I was saying, we, we vote with our feet, our Aboriginal people. We gather where it's safe and healthy. And yeah, that, and that Northland became that because of the work of um, initially it was the work of um, uh, the, the teacher aides there. Um, Deidre Barks and Lynn Thorpe uh, created a a safe place for our kids, and, and, it, and it grew from there as well. So, uh, Did you get involved as a parent? Because Rob, um, as listeners may realise, your kids were at the school. Did you get involved as a parent? Following Deidre and Lynn's presence there, or well, Lynn's our she's Lynn's the um, she was my brother's wife, and her kids my my kids' cousins, and uh, so you know we we were in that group anyway, and we knew those fellows before school happened, and you know that's an obvious place. We we lived in the area, and it was the obvious place to go to school if you're an Aboriginal kid. Mm. Because, you know, we had our own experiences as adults, me. And I, I, I made up my, in my mind, so I'm going to go to school with my kids. I know this racism's still entrenched in the system here. I'm going to protect them against it. One of the things I did was straight away is put that Marbo case straight in the, uh, the removal of Terra Nullis in the library. And um, I was instrumental with the, uh, the dance group and... Uh, so, you know, uh, that was combating racism too and exposing our own kids to what they're entitled to, their, their cultural heritage mm. and stuff like that. So you mentioned the dancing and that being Corey Youthful Shakespeare's. Yes. Founding that group. Yes. And, um, and those, those kids went on during the campaign. Many of them went to the Rebel School during the campaign and also danced their little hearts out. I mean, they did a lot of fundraising <laughs> for the Rebel School, which was completely unfunded. 
they raised money to buy a bus. Yes. So they could get around, and, and that bus was then also used by the rebel school to when it became a mobile rebel school. Do you know, operating that? out of out of the um the footy sheds. Yep. And things like that. Yeah. No, it was incredible, and it was a it was a great lesson for our kids in one way, but they lot they missed out on other education. Where you know, I suppose there's a claim surrounding our education being. Uh, intervened with like that and deliberately and there's d- deliberate reasons why they stopped stymied our, our kids education mm. they're always doing it they pull the rug from underneath us all the time as soon as we get something happening in our community the state comes along with their um with their goons and um paid for bureaucrats and undermine it mm. no funding you have a look at the funding uh, that went into Northland as, as against other schools that may have had Aboriginal people or other communities. Mm. The government decides. And, and the, right. bureau- the long-term bureaucrats, the gatekeepers, Aboriginal people, sitting there providing the consent and the, the policy and deciding where things go. And, and Northland wasn't well-liked by the system because they were, they were different. That's right, and um, <clears throat> I think that. For, do you have memories of um, the principal, Bill Maxwell? Yes, vaguely. He was there mm. a short time. Yeah, he was. Um, so the school before me. That's before right. You. Yeah. So he had, I think, had a big impact on the school culture um, for the, you know, in the 15 years leading up to the time. Then it was then actually closed. But the principal, when it was closed, was Rafaela Galati Brown, who's yeah. who's seen it through the campaign yes. and is still there now, as you you'd know. But um, but Bill, I think, from the sounds of it, <clears throat> had this very necessary maverick streak to do what he knew was best for the kids because, say, for instance, <clears throat> and Lynn Thorpe was on radio on 3CR this morning. She mentioned that that might not just been Bill, but there was a local Aboriginal educational group that... So um, a decision was made that um, it wasn't working... Um, to just have one Koori educator at the school. Um, there needed to be two, probably so that they could support each other and work together and, and, affect, and create a, a relationship with the teachers that, and they had enough power and, and influence to work across the whole school. I, and, I worked as a teacher at mm, yes, There was three of us there. Right, so there you go. So it did take resources. And the government, um, the government like algorithm of like how much funding you get does not include two two Corey educators. You can't have that. You can only have one. Um, but Bill just found a way, whether it was semi-making things up to get the right numbers to get the, the thing, or, or he found money somehow. And he just ha- he knew that that was what it was needed, and so he would break the rules, essentially. At, I and think. Northland is right, right next to the Northland Shopping Centre, and it's had a bit of a reputation, that area... You know, um, East Preston and West West Heidelberg. You know, they were pretty tough areas too. Then, so that, that those schools were um, they were hard schools to begin with. And uh, but I knew it was special when you know I, I realised it was a special school when I actually got on the um, school council as the, the vice president. So you know, that was big change in the my looking at the um just personally looking at the mm. institutions and uh, Gary Foley you know, was also on the um on the school council. It got closed shortly after that though. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, and looking back as well, what you said earlier, Robbie, about as a parent, um, with, of course, your own experience of the mainstream education system, um, so a lot of the Aboriginal parents would have not had access to an appropriate, worthwhile education experience. And so you were well able to see that this was a potentially an okay spot, um, but you're also wanting to be involved in ensuring that the kids were okay, <laughs> your kids were okay, as well as that, of course, having just that such extensive political experience to be able to fight back. Yes. No, I, I had great fun there, and it was good to see, uh, you know, the beginning of the dance group, you know, how they were doing their cultural business at that time to what they're doing today. Mm. You know, generations of uh, Shakespeare's now. So anyone who watched the um, Indigenous round, um, what being AFL or NRL, I think the Spears danced at both? Oh, they did, and um, one of the... Um, one of the Northland students actually designed the, the storm jumper in the, their last game, actually. It was <coughs> Indigenous Round or something. Very cool. So they've all done well. It's incredible how they've done it. But we also lost a few, too, you know. Uh, we, you know we're, we're very vulnerable, a lot of our people. And, and they needed that uh, that community education stuff. And when they didn't have it, they went back into doing the things which was makes you vulnerable. Yeah. And then they lost, there was lost opportunities there for our kids. And, um, That's right. And, and when you it. say that, I mean, it was, it, it, the, the other thing that, that it's clear you, you parents knew, because, I mean, it was reported in the age, you know, quote, direct quotes and things from parents saying that it's, it, this is a life and death struggle. Yeah. It's not a joke. We no, need the school. Oh. And it is life and death. The school had been named in the Royal Report of the Royal Commission into Death in Custody as a model yes. school. And to close it down a year later is to say that we want to make the situation around this in custody worse. So this will in mean that children are not at school and therefore are going to be racially profiled on the streets and are going to be chucked in jail and will pass away. And not have an education and be able to defend yourself, get a job or home, all those things. It's the vicious cycle. It starts with education. Mm. Um, um I'm glad I did go with my kids. We got a good education, even though um, um, uh, I think my son was with the rebel school for a while, but he uh, was we moving on. And mm. um, but it was an incredible struggle to win that. Mm. But you had the, the master there, Foley, then, and and I think without Foley uh, taking on that race discrimination case mm. and presenting it on our behalf, I think that went a long way into. Mm. Tearing a system down, mm. and he he gave he gave testimony to the equal opportunity hearing, and it was, I think it went for it went for a day and a half, and it gave that whole history of education, like racism and discrimination and exclusion of Aboriginal people from education from colonisation onwards, mm. including through his own life of being kicked yeah. out of school and and then returning to study at a mature age and, and things like that. So that whole that whole um, abil- that ability of his to, to give that testimony, and then yes. he did have to well, act that, as a lawyer that, as well. That should be evidence in this true commission. It should. I, I've seen some notes around that in the presentation there. Mm. So they're thinking about doing that because you know 
it's not just our kids have had the education. If you're systemic right across the state, if you have a look at all the schools that have had Aboriginal people there, they're quite racist, actually. Mm. So if you are a member of the Northland community and you are listening and you may may not have, have gotten involved so far, please get in touch. So Lynn Thorpe or yourself, I'm sure, would field those calls. Alan Brown also is able to field calls or myself or, or Gary Foley to... L- Come and have a conversation, Linthorpe. Linthorpe, yep. Have a conversation about your rook. We are going to be talking about um, how to engage with your rook because, like you're saying, this is um, an example of... Northland Secondary College is an example of government making a decision that then um, drastically impacts negatively on, on Aboriginal people in particular and it does need to be heard somehow in the Uruk and so it's, it's a big story it's something people well, want to do together them how that impacted them in terms of their education right. so we are well, looking I, at I remember doing something just prior together. to um, I think it was Kenneth coming in to power, oh, I remember talking to the late Joan Kerner she she was supportive of us mm. you know, so she had, I had probably the only politician I had any respect for in this country ever and uh, she came and told me facility for, for, for in a lot of ways I think we'd be welcome there if if we wanted to go to school. Mm. If we wanted to go to school. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, that's great, Claire, and um, congratulations. You know, like you've you've done the the play, you've got the the court case and the exhibitions, and you know, it's a great story, folks. So if you get along there, and at least go and see the exhibition. You're saying it's on there for. Yep, it's until the 24th of July, so certainly, you know... That's part of NAIDOC, takes from NAIDOC It as does, well, takes so in NAIDOC week and these school holidays, and then after that it'll close, so don't forget to go and see it before, oh, yeah. the, before the end of that. Okay. I look forward to getting my painting back, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's got a Robbie Thorpe piece in it. <laughs> One of the only painting I ever did. <laughs> 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on uh, 3CR 855am, and this is the Thursday morning breakfast show. And you just heard a conversation between historian Claire Land, based at the Mundani Baluk Academic Unit at Victoria University, speaking with Robbie Thorpe on a June 8th episode of Bunjil's Fire on 3CR about the history of the struggle for Northland Secondary College in the 1990s. And this is currently featuring via a Melbourne Museum exhibition, Fight for Survival, which features students' artworks, community responses, and a rousing speech from Gary Foley that united a community. And you can catch Fight for Survival at Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre at the Melbourne Museum, which is at 11 Nicholson Street, Carlton. And the exhibition now closes on Sunday, July 24th. So if you weren't able to catch it before, please do head down. It's such an important part of... Um, of this city's history, and if you're a regular 3CR listener and you've been listening to Robbie Thorpe's incredible work as well, um, it's an important part of that too. And don't forget, you can listen to Bunjil's Fire on 3CR 855 AM every Wednesday from 11 AM to 2 PM. And now we are joined by Dr. Amanda Porter to discuss the Independent Commission of Inquiry into Queensland Police Service responses to domestic and family violence and to discuss some concerns around dominant approaches to police reform in Australia. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, 
welcome. Uh, so I'm re- really pleased to have an opportunity to, to speak um, you know, as, as it will come out, I hope, um, um, through this, that, um, this very hard, increasingly challenging to find spaces um, and platforms to, to speak to these issues. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <clears throat> oh, of course. Um, so we've seen some really concerning reports come out this week about widespread misogynistic behaviour, discrimination and harassment in the Queensland Police Force via submissions to the Independent Commission of Inquiry into the Queensland Police Service's responses to domestic and family violence, which was recommended by the state's Women, Safety and Justice Task Force. And you also made a submission to this inquiry. Uh, So can we start off by talking a bit about the origins of the inquiry and key concerns? Uh, Now, before, actually, before I get you to respond, I I should have included a content warning before this, um, but we will be discussing some of these issues in a systemic sense um, around domestic and family violence. So if if you want to tune back in in about 15 minutes, that's when the interview uh, will, will wrap up. But you can also, if you want to listen to this uh, and you need to talk to anybody, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. So sorry, Amanda. Can, uh, uh, you've yeah. had an excellent outline, and I'll just reiterate that everything that I'll be saying, will, uh, the content will include, um, uh, because it relates to Australian policing, um, Queensland policing, policing in the colony, Queensland in particular, but um, policing Australian Issues in Australian policing general, generally that um, this, that I will uh, what I have to say will have strong mm. themes, including racist, um, patriarchal, and settler colonial violence. So um, um, just a warning there, mm. um, and also just want to acknowledge that um, I'm, uh, I'm tuning in from uh, Wurundjeri country, and I just want to um, acknowledge and pay my respects to um, the Koori community of Victoria during NAIDOC week. But you provided an excellent overview of the. Um, of the chain of events there, and I think you know, um, while it's um, um, uh, it's it's good to see um, honest reporting on um, uh, misogyny and sexism within the police force, um, this isn't exactly news. There's been uh, you know policing historians, sociologists, um, criminologists who have um, you know written life works on um, racism and sexism. Uh, within uh, the police, so um, just that, uh, and there's been a number of. Um, uh, but, but coming back to your question, as, as you said, in terms of the timeline, I think um, uh, the, the um, main chain of events was that there was um, about two weeks ago now um, the coroner handed down some findings, the findings into the um, coronial inquest into the death of Hannah Clark. Um, which was um, received mainstream um, media attention about the horrors of um, coercive control and domestic terror. Um, and uh, there was the, um, in March 2021, as you were saying, the women's, in Queensland, they launched the Women's Safety and Justice Task Force, Task Force um, which was, um, uh, I submitted, must, I submitted a submission uh, to that inquiry um, with Associate Professor Marlene Longbottom, and our submissions on the uh, um, on on that website. Um, mm. And and there were, uh, um, you know, other, um, uh, you know, really extensive reports. A, a report by Professor Watergo um, and um, their Institute for Collaborative Race Research, Sisters Inside, a number of other. Um, um, submissions that um, made all the points that I'm about to make now more um, eloquently. So I encourage people to look at that um, submission in particular. 
Um, it was, you know, from memory, you know, nearly 100 pages mm. on, um, and Professor Watergo um, made that um, criticism from the outset about the terms of reference of, of this particular um, review. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe the, the submission was, was titled the, the, the State as, as, um, as um, Coercive Controller. Um, so I think, um, you know, that's a, um, these were um, submissions that were made explicitly for the purposes of the Women's Safety and mm-hmm. Justice Task Force, which um, uh, I think it's fair to say were in- including, you know, outlining the risks of um, criminalising coercive control and mm-hmm. outlining the, um, uh, you know, racism and sexism which, which and um, white supremacy, which is at the core of core business of, of the police, um, regardless of which jurisdiction you're talking about, which just, um, as predicted by Professor Wodego, was um, rudimentary, uh, rudimentary kind of um, ignored. Mm-hmm. So um, the, um, uh, sure enough, last year, the Women's Safety Task Force um, made uh, its report. It's a two-part report called Hear Her Voice, which, you know, terrible heading, really, given that... Um, you know, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, um, and culturally and linguistically diverse kind of voices were um, completely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, that made 89 recommendations, including a recommendation to create a new offence of coercive control, and um, also um, made a recommendation to set up a new separate inquiry um, for what they called cultural issues, um, which is just. Um, you know the lens that um, that they'll go to to not talk about race or racism mm. um, and the the workplace culture, um, you know the monoculture um, within the police. Uh, um, anyway, um, so this new um, the, the new um, inquiry was um, launched in May this year. Um, the new independent commission of inquiry into Queensland. Um, um, police service responses to domestic and family violence, mm-hmm. and so this, as you can, as you were saying, Priya is, is recent, May 2022. Um, so quite literally, I got an email um, from um, the, the person running that. It was, you know, I had two weeks' notice to put together a new submission. Um, and this is the whole, you know, um, I, I think it's fair to say joke, um, which is this commission, which is that, you know, not only I mean, we're forced to write yet another submission, which mm-hmm. which probably will not be read, um, and in which I reiterate the same points that I made in the previous commission, which was, you know, just um, uh, categorically kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but look, um, don't ask me why I do this, but I did um, write another um, submission that's very rushed. It's also on the public record and it's on my academia page. Um, um, if um, people want to have a look at it, because mm. um, uh, and it, it um, outlines a, a number of issues that um, um, I think are important to to highlight um, for Queensland Police Service, um, but also um, yeah, um, for, for whatever reason. Um, it's really hard to get issues. Um, it's hard to get these issues into the spotlight. Um, you can. There's been very good reporting by events me from the Guardian, um, for example. But mm-hmm. um, always through the lens of gender 
and and um, misogyny, sexism, but there's just, um, in spite of the efforts and the lengths that, that I've gone to and that my, my um, colleagues and sisters have gone to, just... Um, uh, it, it really, um, sometimes, sometimes it can test reality. Um, yeah. let's just put it that way, you know, that, um, you know, haven't I written this before? Um, is there some reason why, um, this isn't newsworthy or isn't deemed newsworthy, um, even when I kind of, um, uh, it, despite our best efforts? Yeah. I mean, like, there, there's so much in, in what you said that sort of speaks to, you know, this, um, this choice to disaggregate racial and gendered injustices, um, which, yep. you know, obviously doesn't speak to the way that they clearly intersect in practice. And if, if I think about the, you know, think about Black and Blue by Ronnie Gari, which yep. um, really, um, you know, outlines some of the harms that, that Ronnie experienced working yep. in the Queensland Police Service as an Aboriginal woman, but also the work of, you know, like Amy McGuire, um, reporting about um, missing and disappeared Aboriginal women. And, you know, we see time and again, you know, there's there's an inquiry into to missing and disappeared Aboriginal women that was put up by uh, Green Senator Dorinda Cox. Um, th- these things are, are not able to be separated neatly from each other. Um, and I'm also wondering if this, um, you know, because this feeds into the cyclical nature of these inquiries, um, I'm wondering if you had any other sort of, you know, thoughts on, on the nature of these processes in terms of, you know, repeated investigations, well, inquiries, yeah. which you've already kind of touched on a bit. Well, I think, I think you raised a good point there. And I'm sorry, that was remiss of me not to say, but I think, yeah, for example, Black and Blue is a great example. That should have just been a submission. And I think um, when each time I read, you know, something like the report, you know, hear her voice or whatever it was, like it's quite obvious that they just don't, you know, routinely ignore um, First Nation voices, Um uh, and journalism, and it really is only because of um, the journal, uh, uh, black journalism, um, and the work of um, uh, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, journalists like Amy Maguire, Alan Clark, Martin Hodgson, um, Hannah McGlade, doing ger- mm. Larissa Brent, and so many others that that these um, stories get into the media at all, um, and even so, um, they're just um, uh, yeah, I think. Part of it is just that intersectional blindness that um, I, I think that, that um, you know, um, McMurdo and um, Moynihan and the people heading these crews can only see things from their individual standpoint as white women and they can't understand how, um, you know, and um, that, that category of, of woman excludes um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, um, if you look at the terms of reference um, and as... Um, Professor Bordego and Sisters Inside um, uh, made very clear in their submission. But as I think through and just I'm so tired from writing these submissions and writing the same thing over and over again, and these are, you know, tailored submissions that are written specifically to bring to light some of the systemic and structural issues um, in Australian policing, but in QPS in particular, right? So um, when I think about it, this whole process, I... I, um, you know, and um, as I get older, uh, um, I, I, you know, um, it, yeah, I can't help but see it as a, um, a way of the state kind of controlling narratives about, quote, unquote, the truth mm. um, uh, and as a way of splintering resistance. So, you know, um, and it 
it's a sobering thought to look back, say, at um, the, you know, protests and, and so on uh, after, say, um, the Four Corners reporting on Don Dale mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the Royal Commission, you know, in hindsight really just served to splinter that kind of, um, you know, um, um, yeah, the... the <laughs> I'm maybe that's too cynical, but um, no, but I uh, I've participated in so many coronial inquests yeah. and, and inquiries now. It it just um you know I've I've seen um you know how this just is is nothing at all about um you know it, it gives gives the word inquest or inquiry um uh, a dirty name um in my view when there's you know uh, conversations about you know um and bargaining that that takes place. Mm. Um, off the table, off the page, um, to ensure that um, you know the um, that the police are and the because of their incredibly power, powerful union um, to, to ensure that um, that that other parties are, or other other um, issues uh, uh, become the focus, and yeah. um, to ensure that the police um, and um, because. You know, um, and that was something I was at pains to, to, to make um, in uh, my submission for the Queensland Police Service um, responses to domestic and family violence. And I just wanted to acknowledge my co-author for this submission because, as I said, we had we really only had um, two weeks mm-hmm. without exaggeration to write this. So I just want to acknowledge my co-author, Connor Hannan, who worked um, um, as, a, as a volunteer um, research assistant on this. But um, we were... You know, at pains to, to um, make this point about how broken the um, the complaints uh, system is, and mm-hmm. the, the process of um, disciplining uh, uh, Queensland police officers. It's on the public record. You can you know um, see that there's um, you know as a as an indictment of of how um, the, the the police workplace culture of, of, of sexism, and um, you can you know there's something like to the tune of 84 alleged um, perpetrators in within the Queensland Police Service itself, and um, it's um, some of the this is this is an issue in Australian police um, generally, um, not just not just um, alleged perpetrators of domestic and family violence, um, but uh, also um, uh, complaints. Um, of racism and, and police mm-hmm. brutality, and it's just almost impossible um, if you followed cases on police brutality, if you followed cases on um, uh, allegations of serving officers with um, domestic violence, or um, or you know, um, it's very very rare to and notoriously difficult to sack a police officer, mm-hmm. um, even when criminal charges are prosecuted in court. I mean, you can look, for example, at um, the case of Zachary Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, um, charged um, with uh, criminal charges, but um, you also see, you know, people would wonder how could an all-white, how could a jury come to such a conclusion? But uh, um, you know, you also see the because the union has this, um, uh, you know, slush fund for um, litigation, yeah. and um, which is, you know. Uh, Hiring the you know they're $15, able to afford yeah yeah you, the, you the can get a fifteen thousand dollar QC who can argue that you know these five previous complaints against Rolf 
you know, the, yeah, the, it's the a, very best uh, barrister can say that um, this is um, that they, whatever the legal they don't have argument a was. Yeah, on the, and, and likewise, case. he was able to, that, that same barrister's QC, sorry, was able to argue that, um, you know, the fact that Zachary Rolfe said that, you know, you should come up to Alice the wild west you can do whatever you yeah, want yeah it know? is like it's so it's mm. so appalling being like seeing this happen again and again and it, it brings to mind yep. things like you know chris hurley for example and yes. the, the case of moranji dumaji great yeah, yeah great and, example because because you know like you know she, after so he was you know cleared by similarly by a, a an all-white 12 uh townsville jury um and after that subsequently uh five more complaints. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think it was, you know, it took, you know, I think the, 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 the final kind of complaint was including, you know, um, allegations of um, fraud and embezzlement. Um, and, and sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, um, but it's... Um, it- it's really, it is, it's farcical seeing this um, happen again and again. And look, Amanda, we're probably going to have to wrap up. Um, but Can I just say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, go, go ahead. The only point I wanted to say was that um, the police commissioner, Cod, said on the public record, and he's, you know, um, he, he's the one responsible for that. When he was probed by a, a journalist, he said, oh, you know, um, uh, you know, when asked whether a woman could have confidence coming forward when they know that the police, that there's a probability that the police they interact with might hold problematic attitudes or be accused um, or a- involved in alleged mm-hmm. um, allegations themselves. And he said, and I'm just going to quote from my submission, can I say there's a 100% guarantee that that won't happen? Well, I can't. So he's, he's, a, he's himself admitted that, that, that there's this, this issue, but he... Commissioner Cod himself was investigated for allegations of domestic oh my violence gosh. earlier this year. And this is why I think the issue of, um, you know, uh, it's nothing, you know, this is just the, the history of police in Queensland or here is just, is, you know, inextricably linked with racist violence, patriarchal violence, settler colonial violence. That is just never going to change it's just unreformable, um, and what we need to talk about is why they get three billion dollars every year, and why they mm-hmm. get this special slush fund so that they can go and, um, and terrorise to yeah, act and, with and, impunity. And, and, and exactly, no. so that's um, just all I wanted to say. Thank and you thank so you, much, Amanda. Thanks, Priya. Yeah, really appreciate you making the time, um, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. And that was Dr. Amanda Porter who joined us to discuss the Independent Commission of Inquiry into Queensland Police Service responses to domestic and family violence and to discuss some of those concerns around dominant approaches to police reform. Amanda is a prison abolitionist and policing researcher of Brinja Ewan, Greek and English descent based in NARM. And we'll have links to those submissions in our show notes. And once again, if you did find this segment distressing, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Now we're going to jump straight into our next segment, which is a replay of Beyond the Bars 2022 on 3CR, which featured Ty, a community member who is at Lawton Prison near Castlemaine, talking about art and doing time during lockdown. Down. Live from Lodden here on uh, 3CR. We're here for NADOC week broadcasting and um, we heard from Brother Boy earlier but he's back on to have a yarn about some of his um, his artwork, you know, and um, we've got Ty here and um, I'm just having a look. He's got, got with him some, some of the work that he's done and tell you what, Brother Boy Steve wasn't lying when he was talking about this talent, mate. Talk us through some of these pieces you brought in, brother. Uh, thanks, Dale. Um, yeah, Ty here, Waka Waka. Um, as I said, 
I've only been painting for a couple of years now, so um, more so the last year and a half. Um, first six months, I was it was more doodling and sort of learning, um, learning the relationship between um, your paints and your brushes, and and then I started really getting into it, and I started uh, my first first four or five uh, paintings. They were sort of traditional. Um, a lot of animal base and from my country, you know, mm. South Queensland. But um, I've uh, ventured out and as I've got further, the last, especially last sort of half a year, I've full found my style. And, um, yeah, I go more colourful art instead of traditional colours. I still, um, I still use traditional colours here and there. A lot of my dot work and my uh, uh, my cross hatching. I yeah, keep traditional, it's fantastic but seeing your colours. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a big thing about uh, like uh, what you know as as the difference um, of attraction when you look at it. Hey, mm. what do you think the difference is with um, traditional and the sort of new modern colours that you're using there? Look, look oh, I, I love. Don't get me wrong, I love the traditional art and. That that that's our roots, you know. So, but, mm. um, they're more ochre colours, hey. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, more dust earth colours. Yep, mm. your red ochres, your yellow ochres. Yep. Yeah, so, and so I can see you got like green, um, green there, bright green, and then purple yep. and black. Yeah, I, that's sort of my modern twist on, yeah, on culture. So, and um, I'll sit down. I'll tape a canvas, a blank canvas to a desk and I'll sort of sit on it for a half a day or a day and decide on what I, what I want to do and get a rough idea and then I pencil it out and then I start painting trying to, yeah like it's a, you know, and you'll be surprised like we've got a lot of time on our hands here so it just sort of flows once you get started but Oh, at the very start of the year, we had a, the boys in here will know, or in most prisons, we had a big lockdown, mm. you know. So yeah. it was like over 30 days stuck in our cells. And, um, wow, that's a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it bad. So yeah. We all fell out of COVID. painting. I did the same as Ty, you know. I just fell out of painting and just killed it. So, yeah. And when we got out of, um, when we got out of that lockdown, I just. I tried to go back to my painting and I was stuck for about, honestly, it was nearly a month and a half before I got back into my groove. Mm. And um, I, I couldn't understand what was wrong at the start, but it was just when you're locked in a, you know, a, a six metre by three metre cell for uh, over a month. Yep, it, it restricts your spirit. Yep. Isn't that right? Yeah, and 100%. You have to work your spirit back up to sort of move around freely again, hey? Yeah, 100%. The brother was, um, the brother was painting every day. Like, there wasn't a, a time where I'd jump up in the morning and I'd see him be painting all day, bang, 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 smashing them out and they, they look really good. And then all of a sudden we have this lock-in and, you know, the, the brother wasn't doing it no more, you know what I mean? And he sort of, sort of lost himself there for a little while, you know? But it's good to see him back, you know, Punching them out now, you know, beautiful artist. You know, his work is beautiful, you know. Um, Thanks, yeah. Willie. No, only my brother. So, so um, I mean, uh, 
I can't speak for you, but I know a lot of a lot of my art that I've done. It comes from inspiration, comes from feel, you know. Sometimes it comes from connection, um, and once you get put in that cell, you lose that. Um, so, like, I, I, I think I would have found it pretty hard to, to paint myself. But I'm looking at your work here, and I can't help but notice the similarities between our artwork at the moment. You, your use of those colours. I mean, when I think about the ochres and those natural colours that we used for, for thousands of years, they were the colours that were available to us. That's right. We've got so yeah. much more available to us, and I love seeing Indigenous artwork with the modern colours that we've got available to us. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm the same. I love our traditional artwork, and I love seeing desert art. Yep. Um, but we've got all these beautiful colours that can be used, and you've used them so well here. I mean, the... The blue, the, the white, the purple and the black just look great together. And, um, and the use of the brighter colours um, with the traditional lines and dots, um, I'm a big fan of, mate, and I think you've done some, some great work there, really good work. Yeah, um, I think um, every artist comes into their own and once you get your own contrast and, yeah, you stick with what flows, I suppose, and you, um, you hone your technique... Yeah. Yeah. So and, sorry. And how long have you been painting for again? Um, not even two years. Not even two years. Yeah. I'm just looking at that line work. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. Okay. Like to, to to master the line brush like that so quickly is um, that's that's natural talent right there, brother. And that is amazing. I've had some good guidance from um, some of the elders. Yep. So, you know. And line work is the hardest. Yeah. So <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no argument here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, that's great. And you talk about finding your own style. I know, I mean, I've, I find my own style like in comedy, you know, and after a while you get used to yourself. How do you find your own style in art? Um, it's, it's a bit about, you know, learning, learning You've got to have a relationship with the brushes and the paints and you've just got to get your hands dirty and actually um, get to, to, to friendship, to friendship with the brushes and the paints and, and the canvas and, yeah. It's yeah that's funny. Great journey, hey? It is, 100%. Yeah. So, and um, I also, you either, you either like art or you don't, you know, so it's either in your blood or it's not. So I don't only appreciate Indigenous art, you know. So my favourite artist is Salvador Dali. I love abstract art. So, you know, I'm always, um, you know, you've got Rembrandt, you've got a lot of artists from um, history. Yeah, yeah that's so right. And Salvador Dali, he did like all the, um, like the screaming, hey, like where like it was... It's, it's like the face that like elongated and spaced out, yep. which I know difference. Like I love how he thinks outside the box too, you know. Yep. And art can be odd to you, or it can look beautiful. And then know? we've got our famous artists as well, you know, Yanamajiras and Brr. so, you know, and you can't, as far as Indigenous art goes, that's that's the top of the chain, you know. Yeah. Yes. He's um, prolific. Yeah, that's great. And it's, it's fantastic with art too because when people, uh, close people to me have passed away, it was great that we had their art to give to mm. each other and give to family members. Yeah. 
you know that's something that was really important to me and when we go visiting each other's house we see those different paintings like mm. it does mean so much it's like a library right there mm. big shout out to Robbie my cousin so who's here at Loddon and he's the one who's guided me through my painting he was the one who first um, yeah put me there with paint and brushes and he guided me the whole way so I've learned a lot from him Nice. Big shout out. Sorry. That's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, good. You painting more? Yeah, of course. Of course. Boom. So. Of course. Tomato sauce. Oh, shit. <laughs> man. Horse. That's great, Ty. Thank you for sharing, like, yeah. sharing thanks. with us. Thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for sharing your work with us and... Um, and your story, and it's you know so many similarities that you hear from a lot of different men that they get that time, so they all right, I'll give it a go, and they discover that they've got this talent, or they've got the um, the art of expression in in whatever way, you know. And I think we've all we've all got it in us, um, you know, and and the more that we find it, um, the more work we end up putting out there, which is which is really good. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's it. Yeah, you're listening to Lodden. You're listening to Lodden Prison. This is Happy Nadoc from 3CR and all the community here and all the fellas out of Lodden. It's been brilliant sharing this time and having yarns to our, our people on the inside. It's important that we look after all our mobs because it isn't right that we're 3% out there and so many more percentage inside. Mm. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we just heard a segment of Beyond the Bars on 3CR, which is running all week from 11 AM on 3CR 855 AM. And that featured Ty, a community member who is at Lauderdale Prison near Castlemaine, talking about art and doing time during lockdown. And you also heard the voices of Dale, Shirley and Willie. And now we have a very special live interview. Um, and we'll go to Ines. Yes, we have my very first live interview uh, with Judy Kuo, who is an Asian-Australian unionist and artist in NAM, and she currently works at the Victorian Trades Hall Council, and her union and activist work feature strongly in her art practice. Thanks for joining us here today, Judy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, it's, so, it's such a pleasure to have someone that you can look at <laughs> and uh, smile at as well, and I'm really excited for this interview. So maybe could we start with briefly what your journey into the arts has been and what kind of art you currently make? Yeah, um, so I guess I've always been drawing ever since I was a kid. I've always used drawing to sort of process what I saw and learnt. As a kid, like, that was a lot of princesses and puppies and that kind of thing. But at the moment, I guess I make a lot more activist and, like, political art because, you know, that's what I'm learning about. That's the community I'm surrounded by. It's what I'm grappling with in myself as well. Um... But I guess, like, with the pandemic, I had, like, a lot more time on my hands and at the same time was witnessing, I guess, broader society just abandon all these communities that I cared about, people of colour, like, poor people, disabled people. Um, and, yeah, I really needed, like, something to, um, yeah, to process that with. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful that um, you were able to look into those communities, learn from them, but also support and solidarity with them. And speaking of 
you know, the work with Disability Justice Network. Um, you've designed their logo, I believe, and in honour of Disability Pride Month. Would you maybe be able to speak about how art intersects with organising and disability justice? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I designed, yeah, like an artwork for them. Um, the logo is designed by Renee, an amazing First Nations activist um, and disabled person. Um, but I guess when it comes to, like, the art, I guess, like, I really use art as a tool to, like, reflect and recommit to, like, what really matters to me. So as a non-disabled person making art about disability justice, for me, that's really about, like, spending time, like, unlearning, like, ableism, you know, as I put down marks on paper, as I put down words on paper, like, reflecting on, like, what I've learned from my, like, disabled friends and public advocates who are doing, like, a really amazing job, like you know, educating us, like, non-disabled people about, like, what we need to do um, in solidarity with, the, like, with the disabled community. So, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, me drawing and putting my art out there is really kind of, like, a visual, like, commitment to being part of that struggle and, you know, pulling my weight as well. And I think, like, having, like, a lot of people who follow my art being progressive and, like, activists themselves, it's also... I also, like, want to use my platform to sort of bring disability justice to the fore a bit more, I think, because it has been lacking. And, yeah, it just so happens that um, I've been able to use my art to, like, fundraise for, like, the mutual aid funds, um, and I feel really, yeah, privileged to be able to do that um, and just support uh, the work that is already being led by disabled people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, I think so often with disability, a lot of organisations and artists are very much like, let's give a voice to the voiceless, and they are not (laughs) at all. Um, And being able to contribute means listening and, Mm -hmm. you know, building solidarity as well. And I feel like also being a unionist, Mm -hmm. you see a lot of messages of relentlessness and solidarity across your work. And I feel like your, your art is genuinely meaningful. And would you mind maybe speaking about how do you meaningfully convey these messages through your art and what does solidarity even look like? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with the second question first. But for me, I think solidarity means like seeing how your struggle is tied up with the struggles of other communities and reaching across those communities and, you know, feeling like you're not isolated in the fight that you have and, you know, being there for others so that they don't feel isolated in the fight that they have. Um, But I think like on top of that, like, yeah, I really like to use the word relentlessness, um, but, it, you know, it's a synonym for, I guess, the durability of your solidarity. Like, I think, you know, it means, like, sharing in, like, the anger and the sadness and also, like, the work, um, even when times are really tough. Like, what comes to mind for me is, like, the campaign around permanent visas for refugees. You know, it's been, like, 10 years and we still don't have it. Um, But, you know, like, having relentless solidarity means staying connected with those fights, even when it can feel really hopeless. And I think it's about, like, recognising that, you know, those communities don't get to, like, put it down and walk away from it. And so... You know, as, like, allies, we better be there one way or another. Um, And, yeah, like, I don't mean relentlessness in, like, a way that you have to, like, power through everything and, like, burn out. It's more just, like, you know, hanging in there, like, staying connected and, like, um, yeah, being present um, with 
fights that can often feel unwinnable because, yeah, like if you, yeah, you just you just can't give up. You're just like, yeah, it's just not an option. It's not an option for them and it shouldn't be an option for allies. And it just means like working out like what you can do to stay connected in that space. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's also funny in the research that I was doing, um, I was looking up on Google how to spell relentless uh, <laughs> because I was worried that I would spell it wrong. And looking it up, it the first definition that came up was like cruel and extreme um, mm. and persistent. And mm. I feel like that seems like a way to frame it. But I feel like in the work that you do, being able to reframe relentlessness as persistent solidarity community is so important. And especially during COVID, uh, you know, I think COVID brought together severe issues of neglect to the forefront that so many of us from historically excluded communities already knew that it was occurring. It was just highlighted for the first time, I guess, to broader community. Um, and you spoke about your visa system series. Would mm-hmm. you mind speaking on, yeah, what you wanted to highlight with that series and what you actually learned? Yeah, well, I think... Um I think I just wanted to, you know, bring to attention like people that our racist immigration system tries to make invisible and create like a visual representation of them and the resistance and their struggle. Um, I think, you know, like we have um, an immigration system that tries to, uh, you know, take away people's bargaining power, take away people's um, ability to set down roots and take down, take away their ability to like self-advocate by all these like really punitive like visa restrictions and you know the whole temporary visa like merry-go-round like it's um yeah like making these people invisible and so I yeah I'm trying to use like my art to um create like a, a visibility that is like um I guess like hopefully empowering but also like educational for those who might not have a lot of um, contact with, you know, international students, refugees, like migrant workers, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Especially working with international students um, in university through COVID, just the stories you would hear of absolute devastation and people being left out in the dirt and universities are essentially real estate landlords mm-hmm. and businesses. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, you know, there are artists and places to go and, that will support them and being able to make sure that, you know, there is solidarity in there and there's, you know, the Migrant Worker Centre and there are places to look for help was really beautiful. And I don't think there's a real upside to COVID, but uh, just knowing that that support is still available. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to ask, because you have have such beautifully extensive (laughs) um, body of work, uh, when you look back at everything, you've been able to achieve with your work. What do you think that you feel the most proud of? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a hard one to answer, but I think um, I would say that, like, being able to, I guess, bring together, like, a community of lefties um, who, like, I guess have the same values as me. And, um, yeah, I just feel really grateful that, like, my art does resonate with people. And I think, like you know, having folks, like, come up to me at, like, rallies and say that they like my work, or I think recently I saw someone, like, using my stickers to cover over, like, Nazi stickers. I was just, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I feel like I've, like, you know, through my art been able to, like, find my people, and yeah, I'm really proud of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel um, very similarly about 3CR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels like the only space where you can really connect and being able to find like-minded people really does just does something to your soul. <laughs> yeah, it does. And just lastly, mm-hmm. even though this interview could go on forever, yeah. um, where can people find your work, support you, and the causes that you showcase through your art? Yeah, um, I guess you can follow me on Instagram. Um, my handle is judyk uh, underscore underscore. Um, I also have a shop, um, judyquar.bigcartel.com. Um, and yeah, um, I always post about like rallies and mutual aid funds on my Instagram and also like all the amazing like community activists that I follow that you should also follow too. So yeah, find me there, I reckon. Awesome. Well, we will link all of that in our show notes and you better go on (laughs) her website and you better buy all their art. Otherwise, we're covered for you um, with love. <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us here today, Judy. Um, I hope you have a lovely day. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. That's very cute. Uh, come Get on the internet. Get online, folks, or we'll find you. Have you heard of the internet? Yeah. Um, online now. <laughs> yeah, internet. Sponsors of 3CR Community Radio. Um, yep, yeah, so as we just heard, that was Judy Kua, who's an Asian-Australian unionist and artist in NARM, currently working at Victorian Trades Hall Council, and her union and activist work features strongly in her art practice. And um, it's such a pleasure to have been able to speak with you, Judy, and uh, to have you in the studio today. Get up, stand up. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Beyond the Bars started in 2002, and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NADOC, from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. And we're back on 3CR 855 AM. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Breakfast Program. And we are now joined by Daniel Storer, who is the research coordinator for the Flux Study, which is uh, conducted by the, the Kirby Institute Faculty of Medicine at the University of New South Wales. And Daniel's joining us today to talk about the study's investigation into uh, the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the men- on mental and sexual health among gay and bisexual men. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really, yeah, really exciting to have you on as, I believe, the lead researcher for the study. Is that correct? Uh, no, <laughs> um, I wish. No, so uh, I'm, I'm the research coordinator, so I do all the, the day-to-day maintenance of the study. Um, research coordinator, lead researcher, it's, you know, <laughs> much of a muchness. Yeah. <laughs> no, but first of all, can you tell us a bit about the Flux study itself and some of the key issues that the study investigates? Um, because I'm also interested in, um, I saw a recent report that you had put out or that, um, you know, 
authors of the study had put out about how the study's approach has changed to account for the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so uh, FLUX uh, stands for Following Lives Undergoing Change, and it's a study that's been running since uh, 2014 uh, to monitor trends in drug use, sexual health, mental health, and community connection among gay and bisexual men. And sort of as you mentioned there, we sort of, uh, as COVID hit, um, the study was reoriented to capture the impact um, that COVID was having on these particular issues among gay and bisexual men. Um, so that happened in about April 2020. We moved re-oriented the study. Um, and because of this, we needed very frequent data um, collections to enable us to um, make assessments about the immediate adaptations that gay and bisexual men were making to the rapidly changing um, restrictions that were coming into place. Um, and so that took uh, the form of brief weekly diaries. So they were short two to five minute um, diaries, as, as we call them, but questionnaires. And this is a massive shift from uh, larger six monthly data collection that was happening. So going from six monthly to weekly. Um, but as you can probably imagine, the level of intensity um, to keep up weekly data collection for both the participants and for us as researchers was, was quite difficult to maintain. Mm. Um, so we've moved from the weekly model now to uh, quarterly data collection, and that also matches uh, quarterly um, surveillance updates that uh, happen around Australia in the states and territories for HIV and sexual health. Yeah. I mean, hearing that, that, that data collection was uh, at one point turned towards weekly but has now pulled back to quarterly, I'm amazed as a qualitative researcher myself that you were able to get that going. It does yeah, sound like it, it. Yeah. A lot of work each week. Um, and I, I quite, it's a lot, a lot easier to, to manage going to quarterly, but the amount of data and the, the, uh, the, the nuance of, of the data actually, even in quantitative um, is actually quite amazing with the week in, week out changes mm. that were happening with people's lives given the, the rapid changing um, restrictions around the country and in different states and territories that, um, over, over the first year of the study. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw, you know, rolling lockdowns happening uh, in Victoria. We also saw quite a few lockdowns imposed around uh, around the rest of the country as well. New South Wales had rolling lockdowns as well. And I'm wondering yeah. what some of the interactions you've seen, uh, what are some of the interactions you've seen between COVID-19 related changes to our working and social lives and some of the prophylactic sexual health measures that have been taken by gay and bisexual men that came out through uh, the, the early part of the pandemic and whether that situation has shifted across the course of the pandemic, um, you know, between the social distancing and lockdown measures that were quite heavily in place and now when things have started opening up. Yeah, so there was a dramatic shift um, early in, in 2020, obviously, in response to the initial lockdown. Um, and the responses to outbreaks um, that occurred mainly in Victoria and to a lesser extent in South Wales, as you mentioned, there was uh, switches and changes between those as, as lockdowns came into effect and then as restrictions eased as well. Um, but as, as we've seen, sort of, I suppose, in the last 12 months, um, there's been a gradual return over time back to behaviours to more like pre-COVID levels. And I suppose in the states and territories where there weren't as many lockdowns, that sort of happened maybe a little bit quicker, but... It's, Maybe not so, not necessarily um, a, a sharp increase. Mm. Um, and though we can't be sure whether things have returned to sort of air quotes normal, um, things are sort of tracking back to sort of where they were pre COVID. Um, but while there were reductions in things like sexual activity and use of HIV pre exposure prophylaxis, so or PrEP, which is a pill taken as directed to prevent HIV transmission, and also a reduction in sexual testing. Um, it's important to note that the men who continue to have sex 
were still engaged in, in HIV prevention and sexual health testing at the same levels as they were. Mm. Um, I'd also like to say that, um, that uh, men have also become, uh, as they've become more sexually active again, um, the ones that have sort of reduced their, their, their sexual activity, their sexual health testing and their use of HIV prep or other HIV prevention methods, um, they also seem to be proportionally increasing these, these things again as, as their sexual activity has increased. So, um, yes, they've kept up uh, their sexual testing and the prevention of HIV as their, their, their risk potentially increases as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it also means that the minority of men who are at risk of HIV before COVID still remain at risk. Mm. Um, and so this is still a problem that there, there was still a, a small minority of men who continue to be at risk of HIV throughout COVID and continue to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it is encouraging on the one hand to to see, you know, the the excellent um, results of, of the work of, you know, community initiatives around um you know, HIV prevention and also HIV health promotion initiatives. Um, but as you said, there, there are still, um, a small group, uh, of people who may not be able to access this or may not be, um, you know, frequently accessing these kinds of, uh, prophylaxis measures and also health services. Now, I'm also wondering if you could speak to the relationship between the pandemic and mental health for gay and bisexual men, considering the impacts of isolation and lack of access to physical community spaces. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll just make the point here that the poor mental health among, among gay and bisexual men is mainly due to experiences of stigma and isolation. Um, and so hence, uh, men who are either not out or not connected to other gay and bisexual men socially um, tend to have poorer mental health outcomes. Um, and this really emphasises why community and peer networks are so important to gay and bisexual men. Um, and just by virtue of our identity and network being based in our sexuality, that also includes our sexual networks as being really key there. Um, uh, so uh, it's not surprising that in the past we've found that things like sexual health testing and access to PrEP have been associated with a gracious social engagement with peers. Mm. Um, but in the context of the dis- disruptions that have been caused by COVID to these networks, the importance of restoring these community connections is really important. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it seems like, you know, being especially losing access to those physical community spaces um, and the ability to, to see people in person, I think, um, could potentially have impacts on, on, you know, the isolation that people were already experiencing yeah. as a result of, you know, systemic homophobia. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm wondering uh, if we could turn to, uh, you know, sort of the policy consequences of this kind of research and what needs to happen at both uh, the state and federal government levels in terms of improving health promotion and access to a variety of health services for members of the gay and bisexual community, particularly now that we're in this phase of the pandemic and whether there's been any action by the new federal government on supporting a community led HIV response. Yeah, so I think um, the, the report that you were sort of referring to at the start of the interview, I think um, it was uh, it's something that was put together by the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations, and they're sort of really invested in, in advocacy to government. So we're using our research to sort of outline the implications that that has for for policy change. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing that uh, that, that our research can help these these sorts of organisations do. Um, but I just want to say as well that the data indicates that there's a complexity of a relationship between community, sexual health, drug use and mental health. Mm. Um, and it's also, it also shows the critical importance of how gay community-based programs um, and the, the key role of community-based organisations such as uh, Thorn Alba Health in Victoria are 
to delivering those programs mm-hmm. for, for communities. Um, but uh, it's also, the data also demonstrates how interactive the relationships are between individual behaviours, community norms, and the local epidemiology. Um, and therefore, it's really important for our research um, to, to underpin the work of these communities and mm-hmm. to help drive it, these, these, these programs. Um, on the last point that you made there, just about the new federal government, I'm not aware of any action that's been taken directly at this stage. Um, but I'm aware that prior to the election, they had made commitments to work towards ending HIV admission in Australia. And one of the key things there, I think, was restoring funding to these organisations, community-based HIV response. Um, so the organisations like the Australian Federation of AIDS organisations, like I mentioned, and also the National Association of People with HIV Australia. Mm. But, yeah, as you said, uh, you know, while that funding at that higher level is important, it's also really important to to resource, um, you know, the organizations that are doing that um, health promotion and support on the ground. So hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully we'll see some some investment coming out in the in the new federal budget, which is, I think, going to be announced later this year. And um, also, you know, in the lead up to the Victorian state elections, we'll be looking towards, um, you know, whether different campaigns and candidates are are prioritizing, you know, funding these community services. Now, just to wrap up, Daniel, um, where can listeners find out more information about the Flux study itself, as well as if they're interested in looking at HIV-related health promotion resources and supports? Well, uh, recruitment for the study is currently open. So uh, anyone who identifies as a man, has had sex with another man in the previous 12 months, and is uh, 16 years or older and living in Australia can head to our website to, um, to participate. That's uh, flux.org.au. That's F-L-U-X.org.au. Um, you can also keep up to date with us on uh, Facebook and Twitter. So it's facebook.com or twitter.com forward slash flux study. Um, uh, just to keep in touch, and if you want to become a fan of the study, then uh, head to one of our social media websites. Um, Thorn Harbour Health is a great local um, organisation, as I've mentioned already, that um, has some, some Victorian resources and services that um, service the Victorian community. Um, but nationally, the Australian Federation of AIDS organisations has some really great resources that people can look to um, for any HIV-related health promotion. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel, for making the time to speak with us today about the Flux study. Some really uh, interesting and important results coming out of there and clearly uh, community-led health promotion uh, activities and supports around HIV is um, just a central part of, of, of all of this conversation. So I appreciate you making the time. That's all right. Thank you again for having me. No worries. And that was Daniel Storer, who's the research coordinator for the FLUX study conducted by the Kirby Institute at the Faculty of Medicine, University of New South Wales. And uh, we're coming up to time on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I did want to mention, um, we did talk about this before the show, but um, just a really concerning headline that's come out over the past few days around uh, youth in Western Australia being sent to an adult prison. So we wanted to, you know, use the opportunity, use this platform to raise that. Now, this is a cohort of 20 young people who are being moved from Banksia Hill Detention Centre in Western Australia to a 265-bed unit at Casuarina Prison. These are young people. The youngest is 14 years of age, and they are allegedly they've allegedly damaged cells and attacked youth custodial officers and uh, there's been a you know a large price tag put on the damage that they've allegedly caused but uh, these young boys are being moved into um, 
yeah, moving into a prison with an adult prison population, and it is, it is just really, really concerning and disgraceful to see this move happen, and also to see the reporting that's come around it, referring to these young people as offenders, referring to them as disruptive youths, referring to them as youth inmates, um, and it's just, it's just appalling. Um, so we'll give you a very quick rundown of what we covered today. First, we heard historian Claire Land speaking with Robbie Thorpe on Bundles Fire on 3CR about the Fight for Survival exhibition, and there'll be um, information about how to attend that in the show notes. Dr. Amanda Porter joined us to discuss the independent commission of inquiry into Queensland police service responses to domestic and family violence and to discuss concerns around dominant approaches to police reform. And then we uh, played a segment from Beyond the Bars on 3CR featuring Ty, a community member who is at Loden Prison near Castlemaine, talking about art and doing time during lockdown. And then we were joined by Judy Kuo, who is an Asian-Australian unionist and artist about organising unionism, anti-racism and disability justice. And finally, we were joined by uh, PhD student and research coordinator for the Flux study, Daniel Storer, uh, to talk about the study which is conducted by the Kirby Institute of the Faculty of Medicine, University of New South Wales, to discuss the study's investigation into the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental and sexual health among gay and bisexual men. And just reminding listeners around Beyond the Bars that you can catch that um, you can catch that all week. It's NADOC week uh, from 11 a.m. on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. And you can listen back by going to 3CR's website and looking up Beyond the Bars 2022. That's all we've got time for. Catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.